The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, legendary New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik on the mystery of mastery. We live in a world that prizes achievement. It starts when we're young. Go to school, ace the test, make the grade, get into another school. And it continues pretty much unabated as we march through life. Get the best job, climb to the top of the ladder, marry the perfect person, have great kids, send them to the right school, and watch as the cycle of achievement starts all over again. The problem with living this way is self-evident. It's rote, soulless, formulaic. But what is the alternative? In his new book, The Real Work, On the Mystery of Mastery, longtime New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik says the alternative is to eschew achievement in favor of accomplishment. What's the difference? Well, if achievement is about passing through checkpoints in a never-ending rat race, then accomplishment, as Adam defines it, is, quote, the end point of an engulfing activity we've chosen, whose reward is the sudden rush of fulfillment, the sense of happiness that rises uniquely from absorption in a thing outside ourselves. Isn't that beautiful? The sense of happiness that rises uniquely from absorption in a thing outside ourselves. Whatever that thing may be, learning to draw, baking bread, when we give ourselves over to it, try our best to become masters, we unlock a powerful sense of meaning, purpose, and joy. I discovered Adam's book not by reading it, but by listening to a conversation he had on our sister podcast, The Next Big Idea Daily, hosted by my good friend, Michael Kovnat. Their chat was so warm and wise and inspiring that I wanted to share an extended version of it with you. If you enjoy it, I really encourage you to follow The Next Big Idea Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Michael is a fantastic interviewer, and the show manages in just a few minutes a day to give listeners a bunch of tools they can use to strengthen their relationships, make better decisions, and live smarter lives. Here's Michael. Now, when it comes to nonfiction, one of the acknowledged masters is the essayist and critic Adam Gopnik who, by the way, also writes fiction, memoir, and musical theater lately. Adam has been a staff writer at The New Yorker magazine for decades, and he's written books like the bestseller Parish to the Moon and his latest, The Real Work, The Mystery of Mastery. Adam knows he's a great writer. He can admit it. He's got the National Magazine Awards to prove it. And he's put enough time into perfecting the craft that he doesn't need to assume a false modesty. But he started to think about all those things he wasn't good at. He didn't know how to dance, for example, or bake. Well into his 50s, he didn't know how to drive, for God's sake, because he'd been a longtime city dweller and just didn't see the need. And he looked around and he saw other people who were good at those things, who were great at them. 
and it got him wondering, how did they do it? How do any of us get good at the things we're good at? And how do some of us become flat out masters? Adam Gopnik, welcome to the Next Big Idea Daily. Really glad to have you here. It's wonderful to be with you, Michael. So let's start with this. You say at the beginning of your book that this is a self-help book that won't help, which I found it's... quite amusing. What do you mean by that? It won't help you in the sense of giving you shortcuts to excellence mm -hmm. or a recipe book uh, mm -hmm. for mastery. What I hope it can do is help you become more aware of how you became a self in the first place, how all of the the accomplishments we pursue, whether it's playing the guitar or dancing with your daughter, how they are the real foundation of your sense of self and how renewing them, restoring them in later life uh, enables you to both to rebuild yourself and to x-ray the self that you already have. And are you a person who your whole life, your whole career have been trying to learn new things and, and master things? Or is this sort of a midlife you know, return to education and self-improvement, oh, you know? It's, it's entirely a midlife crisis in, <laughs> in, in, in form. No, I'm a, I will say on my own behalf that I'm a curious person. And most of the form of inquiry that I've done is the self-education of writing. But yes, the things in, in this book are specific to a particular period in my life when some of them are compensatory, things I always should have done and didn't, like learning to draw. And some of them were necessary like learning to drive, because I finally got fed up with not being able to go get cinnamon buns by the <laughs> ocean in the morning. And some of them are, I don't know what to call it, communicative. They're kind of soul acts, like learning to dance with my daughter um, after she came out as, as gay or queer. And it was a way of having a deeper conversation cheek to cheek about both of us than we might have been able to have um, uh, face to face. Hmm. That's lovely. And as you've, over the years, interviewed people who are true experts in some area or another, have you had that hankering to, to master something, in addition to writing, which obviously you have mastered, but, but are, is there a part of you that's really wanted to be super skilled in some other arena? Yes. Music is my great passion. You know, I came to New York intending to be a songwriter. I love music. I laboriously taught myself, like so many kids in my generation, to play guitar and I have taught myself to play piano. I play guitar reasonably well, piano reasonably poorly. But music, yes, is my great passion. And I always, that's the kind of missing piece of my own puzzle. And I spend more time trying to learn to play um, Hokey Carmichael songs on the piano than I necessarily do uh, the work that, that I ought to be doing. I, too, share that uh, both with piano and guitar, lifelong sort of attempt to get decent at it. But I do sometimes wonder, am I wasting my time? Like if I'm not going to be a professional musician, if I'm, you know, what's the point of spending this much time every day just trying to get these scales figured out? And, you know, do, do you ever think about that? Is it, is it useful to do these things, even if we know we're never going to be much more than mediocre? I think it is. Not only do I think it's useful, I think it's essential. And certainly I'm, I'm addicted to it. When we struggle to learn something, and the way I struggle to learn piano chords and, and melody right hand, chords in the left hand, um, when you finally put all those laborious, stumbling, awkward, inept steps together, and you're actually playing Lullaby of Birdland, you suddenly are opened onto that sense of sometimes called the flow, what I like to think of as absorption, because happiness and absorption 
are so not only similar, they're the same thing really. And when you've had that moment, it's so deeply, not only satisfying, it's self-making in so many ways that it's like, a, I like to call it a cognitive opiate. You know, you can get lots of opiates for your body to ease pain in your body, but the cognitive opiate of putting steps together into a sequence and astounding yourself by it is one of the most powerful things I think that we that we that we get or that we possess, and it's communicable, it, like a disease, like a pathogen in a way. It it enables us to feel confident in ourselves about our own capacities as a person. One of the things you set out to do is teach yourself or be taught how to draw, which is an interesting ambition for someone who's written about art, as you have for quite a while. What made you want to go from art critic to artist of a type? It was an impulsive compensatory gesture. Impulsive in as much as I was found myself at a dinner party sitting next to a great reactionary, classically-minded drawing master named Jacob Collins. And I turned and Jake, I said to him, what do you do? And he said, I teach people to draw. And I said, will you teach me to draw? Inside that impulse was obviously a sort of, as I say, a compensatory gesture. I had spent 35 years of my life as an art critic. And I literally couldn't draw a blade of grass so that it would look like a blade of grass. I couldn't draw a human face so that it would resemble a human face. And I certainly couldn't draw a naked human body mm -hmm. so that when you looked at the paper, you would have a sympathetic response and say, oh my goodness, that's a good drawing in every sense. So I went to study with, with Jacob and I spent two years of Friday afternoons in his atelier struggling to draw bodies and faces. And I literally, Michael, I had tears in my eyes from my own incapacity to do this thing. And I, I walked out and said, I can't do this. And Jacob basically summoned me back and said, yes, you can. Let's work together and we'll, you'll, you'll find how to do this. But then he said to me, look, the thing you need to understand is you've got a symbol set set in your head that you have to emancipate yourself from. Simple set is the way, for instance, that we always draw faces. We draw the heads too small, we draw circles for eyes, triangles for a nose, and a banana for the mouth. That's our symbol set for a human face. It's sort of this convention, this stereotypical idea we have in our head of what yeah, a face looks exactly. like. It's the stereotype distillation of what we see, and it's convenient for us because that's where the information is. That's where emotion and expression resides in those things. But it's not what we look like. It's not actually what a human face looks like. But to try and break your symbol set, he explained to me, the answer was not to throw it away because then you would be helpless. He said the answer was to find a new symbol set. And the first task he gave me, for instance, was to look at faces, his and the faces of the models, and imagine superimposing a clock face over the human face. And then just to ask yourself the very simple question of where does a particular feature or the particular tilt of the head fall if you had it on a clock face? Specifically, is that I right at 10 past two or is it at 11 past two? Mm -hmm. Is the head tilting on its axis at four minutes to midnight or three minutes to midnight? And he called them beautiful name, tilts in time. He said, just make mm -hmm. tilts in time for the next few weeks. And that's what I set out to do. He also gave me the work of when you peer into the play of light and shadow on a portion of human flesh on a, a, a nude model, you're helpless if you just try to describe it. It's too rich. It's too varied. It's too much there. Said, don't turn to your symbol set because your symbol set then will just make you draw stick figure. But think if you can see a specific shape, a new shape 
in that jumble of, of light and shadow. See if you can see the outline of a small African nation. Or he would say, see if you can see the profile of a snooty butler or of a child who's just been given a birthday present. Break your symbol set by finding another more original idiosyncratic symbol set. And once you give yourself that task, that task is manageable, right? You can find right. the profile of the snooty butler in the play of light and shadow on a, on a nude model. And by beginning to put together these very counterintuitive skills that at first seem unrelated to your larger ambition, but when you begin to put them together through perseverance, bit by bit and piece by piece, suddenly you find that your drawing and the drawing that you have before you, it may not be good in, a, in, a, in the, what I like to call the exterior, but you suddenly realize it's so unimaginably further forward than you were when you walked into the atelier that you astonish yourself and it increases your sense of possibility and of confidence. What's the life lesson here as opposed to the art lesson? And what I mean is by changing your symbol sets, is there something in there that you can then apply elsewhere to your writing, for example, or to other aspects of your life? Well, first of all, you realize that there's not a single skill or practice that you set out to learn that isn't governed by that same principle. That you break it down into its uh, smallest steps, which are almost always not at all what you think the activity is about. And mm. then if you persevere in learning those steps, they turn astonishingly into this seamless sequence. So that process of breaking things down into their smallest component parts, which are usually, as I say, counterintuitive, not what you would think the bricks of the building would be, and then building them back up. That's universal. It may be quite self-evident, Michael, that that's mm -hmm. the case. But what I couldn't get over is it's always the case. It's the case whether you're dancing, whether you're boxing, whether you're drawing, whether you're driving. That's how we master things. That's not enough. It's not mm -hmm. sufficient to master things. But that's the kind of underlying grammar of all human mastery. Driving. Now, I guess, first of all, you have to explain to us at what age you undertook to learn to drive and why were you that age? I was 55 when I finally learned to drive. I had been sitting in, as my daughter would say, the gendered seat, the woman gendered seat of the car for a long time while my wife, Martha, did all the driving in our family life. And I was the one who was passing cookies to the back seat and saying, hey, kids, you got to be a little quiet. Your, mo your mom's trying to find the exit. And all of those things that typically in our culture, uh, women, moms have done. And I loved it. It was fine with that. I'm the cook of the house, so I don't mind uh, uh, that role one bit. But I realized that I was sort of imprisoned by my own inability to drive because it meant that even in the simplest task, I couldn't drive to the bakery on a summer morning to pick up cinnamon buns before Martha was awake. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't, I, I didn't like being stuck in that role. So at the age of 55, I decided finally to learn to drive. Um, and what was sort of delicious about it was that my son Luke, just in the normal course of things, was turning 20 that same year and he had to learn to drive. He had to get his driver's license. So we went out and we studied driving with the same uh, inspired and, and eccentric driving instructor, Arturo Leong, together. And we ended up getting our licenses on the same day. 
what was rev revelatory for me about driving, which I think you only could understand if you were older when you began it, is that driving is not, in fact, very difficult. It's just incredibly dangerous. It's shocking. I, I mean, I, I had this revelation recently when simultaneously trying to teach my teenage daughter to drive and trying to get my 86-year-old father to give up his driver's license. And it just did oh, seem yeah. crazy that we were letting all everybody drive these, you know, several ton weapons around on the streets. And we just accept this as as normal, but it's crazy when you stop and think about it. Absolutely. And and 16-year-old kids are doing it and 88, 90-year-old yeah. <laughs> men are doing it. And you suddenly realize this is a crazy way to organize our transportation. You've got this yeah. wild weapon. It, one of the things you do learn, Michael, it, is the positive side of it is that though we're, we're unfortunately, we have the tragic number of, of automobile accidents, the, for the most part, people manage to do this incredibly dangerous thing safely because we really are self-organizing societies, right? We tend to obey the red light and the stop sign when we see it imperfectly, but we do. And on the whole, traffic proceeds. That's a positive thing about the self-organizing nature, I think. Of, um, of human societies. The truth is one of the things that makes driving so dangerous is that each of us is locked into this little black box, literally, where we have a very hard time understanding that the person in the next car is just a human being like us. You know, it's something they always used to say about um, autistic kids is that they were mind blind. They couldn't understand that the person across from them had a mind exactly like theirs. Well, we're all mind blind when we're driving. We don't easily understand that the person in the next car is not a dangerous, lethal weapon, but is in fact a person like us. So we try to have a whole system of performance that reminds the person next to us that we are like them and struggling with the same things they are. Because you know, if you think about it, one, you know, when we're walking down the street, we don't bump into each other mm -hmm. ever because we're constantly making eye contact. We're constantly communicating. And you have to communicate with a car in, in the same way if you're to drive safely. So I was really made aware of that whole performative aspect of it. I had to perform driving as much as I had to learn driving. And I, I like the turn that you made personally as a you know longtime New Yorker and car critic, I think, you know, who had written about the destructiveness of of cars to to our society but then you, you after driving for a little while you come to to see driving as an act of citizenship in and of itself if you say it's the social contract at work at 40 miles per hour swerving and sliding over is citizenship and i, I really thought it was a fascinating turn you made there we're we're in constant communication, using our lights, using the hand, using mm -hmm. all the things we have to say to somebody else, I'm going here, where are you going? Just mm -hmm. let me know where you're going and I will slide over and let you go there. Don't, don't press too hard. Let's have an atmosphere of mutual respect. Driving in that way is good citizenship, right? When you're trying to you know, enter a, a freeway and the people who let you yield when you press, all of those things, those are simple mechanical acts of civic virtue. The other thing about driving a car that was revelatory for me, and again, I think this is true about everything we learn, is that we come to everything we do with everything we are. And though I hadn't thought about it when I started to learn to drive, which was just focused on the cinnamon buns and my son, I realized that really the sub-theme of learning to drive for me was about my father. Because my father is a super competent guy who had been driving since he was 14. And though he's a professor of 18th century English literature, in some way he was defined by his driving. He was the guy who could drive 
everybody everywhere drive 18 hours to see a new grandchild. And I realized that I had not learned to drive in part because I had made myself uh, in his shadow and as well as in his, as in his light. I think we all do that with our, with our parents. And as a consequence, I felt in a certain sense, he's got that covered. I am not that person. I have to become another person. I'm the guy who doesn't drive, but um, makes music and, mm -hmm. and cooks. And I think that by learning to drive, in a certain sense, I was trying to impress my father, mm -hmm. who frankly had always discouraged me from driving, thought I was too absent-minded and too abstract, too easily abstracted to do it. So I was trying to prove to him that I wasn't. But when I finally did, he wasn't particularly impressed. He just said, now you know how to drive. But one of the things that learning to drive made me realize is that we never learn an accomplishment, skill, any kind of practice in an isolated way. We always learn it within the context of the other human beings with whom we associate it. And we can never uh, leave them out of our consciousness as we struggle with the task. I tried to let my father into my body and become my father and remember what his body language was like and what his gestures were like. And I've copied them consciously and unconsciously, totally. I had to interject my father into my body in order to drive a car. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. You are a cook. You're a long-time, pretty serious cook, as I understand it. But especially during the pandemic, maybe, like so many people, you, you wanted to master a new skill, in your case, baking, which had been something you'd stayed away from. My mom had taught me to cook. My mom's an amazing cook. My mom had taught me to cook, but she had never taught me to bake. And I got interested in baking, as so many people have done. And I went off to study baking with my mother. But in addition to learning to bake, I knew that it was also a way, exactly, of having a conversation with my mother. We're very similar, very much alike. And we've had friction and difficulty over the years. But baking alongside her, saying to her, first of all, humbly, Mom, teach me to bake was a powerful thing to do. It was a, it was a, a, an act of 
peacemaking, not that we were at war, but it was an overt act of saying, you know, I value this thing you do so well, teach me how. Mm -hmm. And then she did, and then she did. And it was uh, wonderful to see in her so many of my own traits, her impatience, her quickness, her over eagerness, her extremely strong opinionated mm -hmm. side, which I share. And um, it was a real dialogue. And it was also, again, a dialogue about identity. Because my very first memory in life of mastery was watching my mother roll out strudel dough. And I always thought that was something miraculous about that. So learning to do those things, including strudel with her, was a way of interjecting and internalizing not just the skill of baking, but the fact of my mother mm. into, my, uh, into, into myself. Just give a little more background on your mother, because I don't want people to think that baking was her primary activity in life. My mother was one of those women of a particular generation who went on to ha have an extraordinary professional career. She was a professor of linguistics, and yet she made a big dinner for six kids every night of her life, and always with uh, homemade dessert, strudel, apple pie, souffles, pitivier, you know, the most ambitious kinds of French things. And that doubleness of her life had always been intimidating. So engaging with her in this was not just about learning to bake. It was about sharing a temperament and learning how to make our shared temperament into something positive and productive. I think one of the insights you share repeatedly in the book is this idea that mastery is much more common than we think. Uh, we yeah. tend to imagine that there's just this sort of elite group of geniuses, but uh, there are incredibly skilled people all around us every day, including in the kitchen at home. Yeah, absolutely. Two things I think are, are, are worth, worth pointing out. One is, is that, yes, mastery is incredibly widely spread. The example I use in the book is the Turk, the famous chess-playing automaton of the late 18th century, which, to make a very long story short, baffled in, in all of Europe because this machine could play chess and defeat great chess masters. Of course, there was no machine. It was just a chess player hidden in the base of the Turk. But what was fascinating is people used to debate because people had a sense of that, that that might be the solution. And they used to debate, how could you get a genius chess player in that little place, right? You'd have to have trained them from childhood or it was a baby or a, a little person or something. And the answer was that the, the guy who invented it, Von Kempelen, had just went from one chess cafe to another in Paris or Baltimore, wherever he was. And he basically said, who here wants 100 bucks and doesn't mind close working conditions? Because his genius, the thing he really understood mm -hmm. is that mastery is very much more widely spread in a modern society than we think. You might not be able to get the greatest chess player, but the second best chess player in the chess cafe is a fantastically good chess player. And mm -hmm. you put him inside an elaborate Turkish automaton and the atmospherics help turn him into a great chess player. That's a kind of fundamental truth about modernity that we overlook too easily. The other thing is that we slight too readily perhaps the kind of mastery that we associate with domestic tasks. You know, we yeah. don't understand that baking or cooking generally or childcare is just as demanding, magical, painstaking as drawing or, or writing or any of those other things. So I think that that's, that's equally important. And I hope one of the things the book does is to make one aware that things we too easily condescend to as minor arts or even worse, as women's work, 
demands just the same degree and complexity of mastery as the things we normally think of as the high or fine arts. When talking about your mother, you did talk about her late style as a baker, that somehow as she got older, something changed in her baking, which brought up this whole idea of how we all have to adapt to our changing bodies and our skills hopefully can change so that we can express ourselves even as our bodies get more challenged. Late style is a thing that has always fascinated me because one of the themes of the book in the simplest sense is you can still do it when you're in your 50s or 60s. And one of the themes of the book is that you can find new things to do. I, I have no hesitation about saying one of the things this book is inclined to do is encourage older people to seek out hobbies, not to, mm -hmm. to do new things. It's important. It's possible. It re reignites your cognition. And even more important than that, it opens you up again to the experience of that beautiful cognitive opiate of absorption. And one of the really beautiful things is to see an artist who survived a long time, how if they stayed interesting, they had to invent an entirely new late style. We think about Matisse's cutouts. We think about Titian, the great Venetian painter's last paintings. One of the heartbreaking ones is Mozart, because Mozart's last the K400 pieces all have that quality. It's like the, the pure reduced essence of Mozart. So my mom became a more and more Mozartian baker, I suppose I have to say. She has one thing that she invented, which is the boissant, which is a cross between a brioche and a croissant. And my friend Malcolm Gladwell says, why you have not exploited that commercially with a series <laughs> of mom Gopnik's boissons in every American city, he does not understand. And he's right, we should do it. And she just got focused on boissons and bagels, the way that um, Matisse got focused on cutting out blues and, and yellows. And there was something sort of, for kids, there was something sort of exasperating and, and obsessive about it. But there was also something deeply beautiful about it because that pattern of uh, distilling all of our life experience into a handful of aphorisms or visual gestures or boissons and bagels is such a deeply human one. I did want to ask you a little bit about this um, career move you made some time ago where after decades of doing the kind of writing you're most known for that you decided to enter the world of musical theater. What made you think you could become that kind of writer? Well, I'd always been writing lyrics. I wrote The College Show, which was about the life of um, Vladimir Tatlin, the Russian constructivist architect. And I came to New York with that under my elbow, sure that I was, you know, 30 seconds from Broadway, because who wouldn't want a big show about the life of a Russian constructivist architect? But I'd always loved songwriting more than anything. And I was always, all my life, I've been writing songs. I wrote them for my family, for my wife's birthday, for uh, the kids. And I, writing lyrics was just something I loved to do. But I only got a chance to do it professionally when uh, the great composer David Shire approached me because he had been enjoying some of my writing. And his wife pushed him to do it because he said he wouldn't be interested about writing a, a musical together. And we did. It's called Our Table. You can find it on Spotify. I'm immensely proud of it. And writing lyrics was the, I wrote the libretto, but I also wrote the lyrics. And it was something that I, I loved to do and found that I could do ably because writing is writing. But what fascinated me to come kind of to the ground, to the ground of it is that music is by far the most powerful medium we have. And a great song is to my mind, without question or exception, the highest art form that 
human beings have. It's the one place where heart and head meet most potently. It's the one place where you can get an idea in tune with an emotion and that becomes more powerful than either idea or emotion. Of all the art forms known to man, the song is, I will say, incontestably the highest. It communicates to universally to the most intricate mind and the simplest. And of all the work I've ever done as a as a writer, there are two songs in our table that are my two proudest achievements, particularly oh. It's Never Raining in Seattle. It's never raining. It's never raining in Seattle. Not in Seattle. The sky's so blue there. They close the schools there at the frightful sight of a rainbow. Among the other insights you draw from the world of music is this idea of, you use vibrato as an example, of, um, I think you say, expressiveness is error. I mean, in a way, what we're attracted to is not perfection or virtuosity. We like a hint of that, but what we really like is the the human idiosyncrasies that shine through. And you have some great examples in the book. Could you share some? Yes. Of, of all the kind of themes in the book, of all the lessons in the book, of all the takeaways, that's, I think, by far the most important. That technical virtuosity, though it's essential and it's something we pursue for a lifetime and are never satisfied with and should never be downgraded, is never enough. What we seek in art is this dialogue, this tension between technical virtuosity on the one hand and signs of the individual vibration, the idiosyncratic vibration of an individual. A favorite example of mine, which is relatively new for me, is um, the great Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix was a wonderful and hugely virtuosic, adept blues guitarist. But it was only when he discovered the power of amplifier distortion that he became Jimi Hendrix. He understood that in this, the, the beeps and oinks and sirens and, and growls of amplifier distortion, which everybody had always struggled to keep out of the music, that there was a language, an overlooked language of personal expression that he could add to the music and become Jimi Hendrix when he did. <laughs> That's what we value in music. And think of any of the singers who we love, we never love them. There are lots of people graduating as sopranos from music school who can hit every note perfectly. We love Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughan and uh, Renee Fleming exactly because we immediately identify their voice. The idiosyncratic vibration of their voice in every sense is what we love. You can even be in, in some sense technically inept like Bob mm. Dylan, but have such a unique pattern of breathing and interpreting that we'd rather hear, all rather hear Bob Dylan than Perry Como. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's not just a rule about uh, physical performance, magic or music. It's also true about the thing I do about writing. You know, mm -hmm. what the core of writing, the moment you find yourself as a writer is when you find your voice. And your voice as a writer, your voice on the page is what you have to pedal and to perform. And there's no good writer in the world who doesn't have an immediately distinctive voice on the page that we recognize the moment we open the book. And that's not just an accidental thing like a thumbprint. 
that you leave. It's a willed, created, crafted thing. And I don't know any good writer who won't tell you the moment that they, after, usually after years of work and labor, discovered their voice, found it speaking on the page within themselves. Because it's always exactly the same way. It's a composite of virtuosity, of knowing how to use language, having a large vocabulary, knowing the ins and outs of English usage, and of breaking uh, mm. th that technical virtuosity, understanding when this is a device I always use to, to and I shouldn't give it away, but I will. I end every essay I write with one simple monosyllabic sentence because it lands the whole thing, which can be very elaborate mm. and baroque and multisyllabic. It's like, you know, a drop shot in tennis, right? You just a boof. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to have four monosyllabic words that sum up the whole. It's those things that uh, provide the... Uh, Impression of a voice is what we mean by voice in writing, and voice in writing is everything, as it is in, in all the arts. So that tension and dialogue between the pursuit of perfection and the deliberate introduction of artful imperfection, that's what makes craft into art. Mm. Yeah, there's this popular idea, sometimes associated with our friend Malcolm Gladwell, about 10,000 hours of practice to get to mastery. But as you point out, you know, it's not like Bob Dylan spent 10,000 hours trying to become the perfect folk musician, but he did spend 10,000 hours becoming Bob Dylan. Like just becoming Bob Dylan. Yeah. You, like like finding your voice, it, there is something you're you you have to get good at being yourself at the same time you're trying to get good at the um the craft. Yes, and you, and very often getting good at being yourself means going, you know, coming back to the way that you don't learn to draw by learning to look. You learn to draw by making tilts in time and searching for the shapes of African nations. You don't find your voice by unleashing it inside you. It very often runs at countercurrents to your natural inclinations. Father's Day is right around the corner. Have you picked out a gift for your old man? I hope it's not another pair of grill tongs or monogram golf tees. How about something he'll actually want, like the gift of engagement in the world of ideas, something he can enjoy throughout the year? With a hardcover subscription to the Next Big Idea Club, we'll send your dad the eight best nonfiction books of the year in four boxes, one per season, as chosen by our curators, Adam Grant, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Kane, and Daniel Pink, along with exclusive audio and video e-courses, free access to our celebrated app featuring a new book summary every day, invitations to special events, and more. Visit nextbigideaclub.com slash gift and use the code DAD20. That's D-A-D-2-0. To take 20% off, that's dad20 at nextbigideaclub.com slash gift. Let's start by talking about boxing. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what made you want to learn to box. And you say that you loved all the, the kind of pugilistic writers like the Hemingways and Norman Mailers. And, but as, as a fairly non-pugilistic type of writer, you know, what made you want to go that direction? I, I think I decided to learn to box. Like everything, every inquiry in this book, it began, like everything in life, with a small impulse, which then mushroomed into a uh, a larger practice. It initially, was just my the, uh, the weight trainer I went to said, you would love boxing, and I got a great boxing teacher. And 
I thought, great, learn to box. What could be more interesting? Mm. I'd like that. And partly because I think that it was truly, Michael, it was during the Trump years and I had an enormous mm. amount of accumulated anger and belligerence that I wanted to, to siphon out. But also because uh, I'd always been fascinated by the literature of boxing. And what I discovered when I started boxing is, first of all, again, the same pattern of the, the small counterintuitive step turning, if you persevered in it long enough, into, if not as seamless, then at least an uninterrupted sequence. And I, I realized that it connected me in a way that I hadn't anticipated when I began to my own grandfather. My grandfather was a, a semi-pro, you know, an amateur boxer in Philadelphia in the 1920s and 30s. And he loved boxing, talked about it all the time when I was growing up. And I had never fully entered into, my grandfather's been gone now for many, many years, but I remembered him in the same way that my father came to inhabit me as I drove. My grandfather came to inhabit me as mm. I boxed. And at the same time that I was boxing, I took up dancing with my daughter, Olivia, because while boxing was a kind of rear view mirror into my grandfather's psyche and into my own mixed up masculine psyche, dancing was a way into a conversation with my daughter, who was one of the lights of my life along with her brother, um, and who I'd always written about and been very close to, and who had gone off to college and come out as queer, to use the word she prefers to gay, um, which was no shock or worry or wonder to me, but it recalibrated our relationship in mm. lots of ways. And I thought we could have a better we both thought, because I said to her, Lilla baby, why don't we take up uh, ballroom dancing? <laughs> and she said instantly, somewhat to my surprise, I'd love that, Dad. I'd, <laughs> let's do that. And we both knew that there was a lot of other material in it that we would unknot as we stumbled into dancing. So I tried to put those two activities together, boxing and dancing, both for their commonality, just mm -hmm. as sheer physical practices, but for their larger dialogue as a as, uh, psychic or if you like spiritual ones hmm. well a, a couple of thoughts one is that I, you know with some surprise that boxing had a lot more defensiveness in it than you anticipated yes. and dancing had a lot more aggression than you had anticipated maybe or at least yes. for the person leading there is that kind of assertiveness that you have to absolutely. express it every time. absolutely if you if you're the man if you're the male if you're mm. given the designated male role in dancing you've got to lead and it, yes, of course, it's a stereotyped and gendered step, but it's one that human beings have been engaged in for a very long time and um, that has a beauty and kind of uh, eloquence of its own because it's a form of courtship. Just as boxing is all about perpetually thinking about the imaginary other, the opponent who you may never, I'll never get into the ring unless they can find <laughs> another five foot four uh, middle-aged um, writer who's been in the sedentary <laughs> occupation. You never know. They, they, they might start that division any day now. I am, I'm open for, to, to fight a benefit if they can find that, if they can find that guy. But I can dance with my daughter adequately. I don't know, pretend for a moment that I dance well. She's wonderful to look at, but I don't claim that. But the internal sense of the unique satisfaction of dancing is something that I think that Olivia and I shared. And it's where I choose to end the book saying exactly, in a certain sense, it doesn't matter if it looks good to everyone passing by in Central Park and to the rats rustling in the bushes in the pandemic years. We are engaged in a common practice that brings us together in a state of absorption that 
produces a unique kind of happiness. Of course, the these two activities, boxing and dancing, are the two that you take up that do involve a partner, a sparring partner or a dancing yes. partner. And and then you do kind of bring out this lovely idea that that mastery is really always for people. You're you're doing it for others as much as yourself, even though there is this great satisfaction in being good at a thing for itself, and that's that's satisfying to you. But ultimately you do want to give the world and to those you love and and to share your skill and these things you're taking pleasure in with others. Yes, that's the final and by far the most important insight, um, epiphany that I had in the in the course of writing this book. You know, the and every magician will tell you that you can't do magic into a mirror. You can mm-hmm. learn magic in a mirror, but the magic in magic is in the exchange between two active minds. That's where magic takes place in that exchange, not in your magic is in your mind, not in your fingers. When you're drawing or painting, you're inviting the beholder in and and a good drawing is a series of seductive invitations to the viewer to look in new and unexpected ways. And boxing, which you wouldn't think of in this way, everything you do in boxing, you do in opposition to an imaginary opponent who's standing right across from you. And if you don't imagine that opponent vividly and avidly, if you're not constantly slipping and and fainting in in his presence, then you can't box, even if he doesn't exist. And you dance with your daughter, you dance with another person. There's a French philosopher named Emmanuel Levinas who once said that um, we know ourselves as ourselves only when we look into the eyes of another. And I used to think that was the kind of thing only French people would think was profound. But mm-hmm. I now am inclined to think it's the sort of thing only Americans would miss its profundity, mm. uh, actually. And I think that that's true. We do the mastery we seek, whether it's writing or drawing or anything else, whether we accomplish it at a high level or we practice it joyfully at an inept level, is always about connection. It's always about uh, connecting with an audience, an individual, sometimes an imaginary individual. But there is no mastery in the absence of another. Well, Adam Gopnik, it's been great having you on The Next Big Idea Daily. I really appreciate your time and your insights, and I really enjoyed your book. Thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure talking to you, Michael. Thanks. That was Michael Kovnat speaking with Adam Gopnik about his recent book, The Real Work. If you enjoyed it, I highly encourage you to check out Michael's show, The Next Big Idea Daily, which you can follow wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger and mixed by Mike Toda. The team at LinkedIn have mastered the art of podcasting. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.